0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the alumnus podcast. Hey, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome to another edition of alumnus episode six. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us, and um, we're glad that you have chosen to spend this time with us uh, 11.30 to 12.30, excuse me, 11.30 to 12. Every other Friday, we put together a LinkedIn Live event. You can also watch us live on YouTube if that's your preference, Uh, but it's great to have you with us. I'm your host, Ryan Catherwood. Alumnus is a Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting production, and we try to have uh, discussions on topics that are most interesting to you kind of specializing on alumni and donor engagement strategy in university advancement. Uh, today, we are broadcasting live. Last week, we did a pre-recorded show. So if you have some questions for Chris, or myself, or even better for today's special guest, Brian Cisco from uh, North Carolina State University. Brian is the vice chancellor for university advancement. If you have any questions for myself or Chris or Brian, go ahead and log those in. Into the LinkedIn comments section for this event. We can see those questions and interact and and mention you live on the air. In fact, we'd love if you're watching this event live to go ahead and introduce yourself in the LinkedIn comments section so we can say hello as well. Uh, So the first 30 minutes of AlumList is a live show. uh, And then we step aside and interview our special guest for the day in a private Zoom chat. And we put those two things together to make a whole show that you can listen to by podcast. And that podcast is available through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. All right. So with that wind up, let's bring in the star of the show, Mr. Chris Marshall. How are you, sir? Today, definitely not the star. I'm doing great, Ryan. Good to see you. It's been
1: since Wednesday I last saw you.
0: Yeah, and in fact, uh, it was yesterday, wasn't it? We were uh, hanging out at the New Orleans airport. Uh, these days just blend together. That yeah. uh, we had a great trip up to New York City to the Washburn McGoldrick client conference. It was really fun. Did you? Uh, what did you think of the the conference? I,
1: I, I enjoyed it. It was great to be in person. I, I learned a couple things. One, um, the attention span of the average conference attendee. Is, has dropped significantly over the last two years during the pandemic. Uh, we did four sessions back-to-back, back, back, four back in a row, and we probably should have cut it down to one, uh, or cut it by one. But uh, it was it was great. Great content, great to see people. It was fun to be in a room together sitting side-by-side. Side. So I uh, learned a ton. And the other thing that stood out for me was that there was a clear NC State theme. We had Adam Compton join us for a panel you and I were on, Ryan, and then – uh, couple of the folks from NC State, including our guests, were there. And now we're here. I'm here at NC State today, and our guest is across the hall from me. So,
0: yep. Yeah, it was Chris's mission to make sure he got down to Raleigh in time on, on Friday uh, to be a, for uh, an in-person event. And the, the travel gods were trying to uh, not make that possible. We were dealing with canceled flights and, and long delays. But uh, all is well. Chris has made it uh, down to Raleigh and uh, made it here for the show. Uh, what What did you think of the, the presentation that uh, we were involved with, Chris? You know, we did, along with Adam Compton, a presentation, sort of the future cast of yeah. alumni engagement and annual giving. Uh, well, first of all, you guys were
1: the stars of that show. Uh, it was great to just sort of feed you some quick hit content, and you guys took it and ran. The takeaways, the main sort of uh, highlights for me were comments from Adam around more is more, not less is more about how often and how frequent we are contacting our annual donors. And, and, and even the, the, the title of the, of the session, Adam, uh, sort of the provocative question we threw at him was, should we still call it annual giving? And is it more like regular giving like they do in the UK and other places? So uh, those were fun. Uh, the, your comments around journey mapping I thought were fantastic. We could do a whole session on that on the show one of these times, Ryan. And then my favorite moment was when someone came up to us. So we were sort of forecasting of where things are going to go and Ryan and Adam were taking it in all kinds of really cool directions. And then at the end of the show, end of the session, someone came up to Ryan and said, thank you. That was so
0: good. But you really scared the heck out of me. That. It was a great I was I was really kind of uh, taken aback by those remarks. But, um, you know, it was it was I'm glad that what we said sort of struck people as, as different and, and new and, and hopefully sort of out in front, I suppose. When you think about, Chris, the idea that, you know, at that Washburn conference, lots of VPs were in the room of advancement, including today's guest, Brian Sisko. Uh, So it was great to meet Brian in person also. Uh, But, uh, you know, and all of these VPs are in various stages of planning, executing, evaluating fundraising strategies. How do you think about the importance of alumni engagement and annual giving when evaluating the connectivity with a campaign?
1: Yeah, we're gonna see more and more institutions rolling out large dollar goals like they've been doing, but with a engagement goal. And in the case of a William & Mary, for example, recently, they had a three part goal where they wanted to raise, I think it was a billion dollars. And the other two parts were bring annual giving percentage to X and alumni engagement score to Y. Um, so they, they had a very clearly public articulated goal that they tracked Reported on on a regular basis, both for participation rate and for alumni engagement rate, and to me, I think those are critical because I I, I believe that more alums will see themselves in those goals than in the big billion or plus dollar goals because it's hard to think about money at that scale when you're the rank and file, but you can be part of a percentage goal and get yourself involved. So I, I think it's going to be something we're going to see more and more heading forward. Yeah, yeah. and. <laughs> and Aaron, George, Barney, and hey, Rob
0: on the LinkedIn live stream. Good to see you all. Thanks for joining. Yeah, yeah. thanks for chiming in, guys. Uh, so let's go ahead and bring in our special guest for today. We have um, Brian Cisco joining us. Hey, Brian, how
2: are you? I'm great. You know, I've been back here in the green room. Uh, <laughs> but the, the Jimmy John's subs and the potato chips were missing. I don't, I don't know what happened there. But,
0: uh. We have a low budget on the CMAC. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't tell us what you wanted in the green room. We would have, we would have happily come up with those uh, special items. But we're, we're grateful for you to be joining us, uh, Brian. You are, of right. course, vice, uh, the vice chancellor for university advancement. I said vice president early. Vice chancellor. North Carolina State University, and and you recently completed a $2.1 billion campaign, which is fantastic. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, So thanks for joining us, and uh, congrats on the successful completion of the Think and Do the Extraordinary campaign at NC State. Uh, So now, how do you feel that the campaign is now completed and was a resounding success? Did you go to Disney World?
2: (laughs) Well, given that we finished this campaign, still in the midst of a of a pandemic, uh, a lot of travel at that point wasn't necessarily part of the equation. But you know, the way I like to position this, and uh, for those that were with uh, were with me and our team at our campaign celebration, I tried to exhibit the fact that you know these things only come around every once in a while. In fact. I started in advancement in 1990, and I've been part of leading and or part of a team that uh, concluded four successful campaigns. So you think in 32 years I've been part of four campaigns, right? So so in so many ways, these campaigns and the successful conclusion of campaigns is really, you know, our Super Bowl. As advancement professionals, this is our national championship. It's like Olympics. Uh, yeah. More like Olympics. They're further apart. Well, maybe so. Maybe, okay. so. But, uh, you know, I try to, to to share with our team and particularly those younger members of our team who maybe are just getting started, that you have to soak it up, right, that you have to to, to really enjoy the moment because they don't come around all that often. I came to NC State in 2014. Uh, Chancellor Woodson uh in part, recruited me here because of my campaign experience, but really with the explicit goal of of leading this uh, university through this particular campaign. So embarked on a $1.6 billion campaign to achieve $2.1 billion, uh, I think blew away all our expectations. So it feels really good. That's awesome.
0: Uh, And I think that's a really great uh, you know sort of philosophy to make sure you take time to enjoy it, right? To Revel in the completion of it and, um, you know, make sure that everyone feels positive about that extraordinary accomplishment.
2: Absolutely. I actually uh, got to
0: attend the uh, campaign close
1: celebration, and it was one of the best events I've ever attended. The well, and just
2: as an aside, uh, you may not have heard this, but we just got the news this week that, uh, you know, the campaign closure film that was put together to help us celebrate the end of the campaign, just won a case gold award.
0: Ah, that's so we're great. We're
2: really thrilled about that. Yeah. Congrats.
0: Uh, so Brian, what, uh, what do you attribute the success of the campaign? And, and when you think about the impact this will have on the future of NC state and what gets you the most excited?
2: You know, one of our, our we had kind of five overarching goals in this campaign and, uh, for sake of time, I won't go through all of them. But one of those was to really build this sense of culture of philanthropy. Um, NC State, like a lot of land grant universities, uh, were late to the game. NC State really only got serious about uh, advancement work, I dare say, within the last 20 years. You know, I like to say Harvard had their first campaign in 1643. They've been at this a while. Uh, but in our case, you know, we didn't even keep electronic records of our alumni until the 70s or 80s. And so, uh, you know, we were taking on a uh, an endeavor that uh, from a maturity of program perspective, maybe didn't rival some other universities in this country. And and so we really focused on how do we how do we demonstrate impact? Right. How do we really build this culture of philanthropy? And, and I think uh, we've spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, we've done that by showcasing impact. Right. Whether it's in gift announcements, whether it's in celebrating certain moments, we've really focused on impact. And I think that's brought our constituents along with us along the way. It wasn't just about dollars, right? It's about what those dollars will do. And, and to me, that was was critical. I think another key element was, and I, and I think it's uh, it's it, it, an incredibly important part of success in a campaign is the lack of leadership transition. Our chancellor and our provost have been in place for the last 12 years, so they were consistently in place throughout the duration of the campaign. Most of our deans were in place throughout the duration of the campaign. And while we certainly have had some attrition on the staff level, key leaders have been in place uh, consistently through the period of this campaign. And, and I think that's a, that's a part of the secret sauce. When you look at uh, universities who maybe fall short or struggle to meet their goals, it's often because there's been a leadership transition in some form or fashion. Uh, you know, one of the, the the bright spots in this campaign, and I remember sharing this news with Karen George from Washburn and McGoldrick, and she paused for a second and said, repeat what you just said. I said, yes, all of our colleges and units that had an established goal for this campaign surpassed that goal in this campaign. And she she felt like that was, uh, you know, a remarkable statement because there's always one or two because of those changes in leadership that may struggle or fall short. And uh, and so to me, that's a real point of pride. I think from a an overall uh, point of pride and passion amongst our alumni, this was kind of a, a moment where uh, if you have a chance to watch our campaign film, uh, we talk about how this is. NC state's alumni's moment to shout from the mountaintops right uh, to to demonstrate that pride that maybe in the past was was one that was you know more diminished, right uh, where maybe alumni didn't feel that they could you know toot our own horn as much and and I think we've gave we've given them permission to do that uh, and then I think, Finally, you know, one of uh, my heroes is Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, I'm a big Gladwell fan, and I'm pleased to say that Malcolm actually is a donor uh, to this campaign. Uh, But we talk about how this campaign really has served as a bit of a turning point, a tipping point, I'm sorry, tipping point for not only NC State, but uh, NC State advancement. And so uh, that tipping point is uh, is that point where it becomes a whole lot easier uh, going forward uh, than it was prior to.
0: Did you have a chance to meet Malcolm Gladwell, by chance?
2: Via Zoom, I did, yeah. Okay. Uh, right. not, not yet in person, but we're hoping to get him to campus at some point.
0: We've also sent an invitation for him to appear on uh, Alumless, and he is, he has not responded yet, but... Uh, hopefully with your connections, maybe we could get him on the podcast as well or on the show to talk about his philosophies around higher education and, and fundraising. He definitely has some interesting things to say. He sure does. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, Chris, um, you know, thinking about uh, you've been working with Brian for a while now and the team at NC State, what have you witnessed as you've been engaged with uh, the team at NC State and, and now working to think through engagement strategies for the future?
1: he unmuted me um so let me let me do the sucking up first so first of all um, (laughs) uh, i've worked with 200 vice presidents vice chancellors and i can count on a couple fingers the the top people that that i just you know respect and value their work and their vision and brian is in that list he's just fantastic so it starts at the top and and on top of that we have a chancellor here randy chancellor woodson is just one of the best leaders i've ever met in higher education so right there That's the impression I begin with. Um, The the other, you know, of course, Brian has built over his time here one of the top advancement shops in the country. The alumni team, um, very strong team, but they had for a long time had been sitting out on an island, kind of isolated from the rest of the advancement operation. That's the honest truth from my assessment was that we need to bring them closer to what's happening here. So we've been spending our time coming out of an assessment report that basically stated that to figuring out what that looks like. And what I've been amazed at is, we just came out of a two hour session before we came over here to do this, is the folks in that room are leaning in and and, and collaborating and willing to see that new model and how it could work and be more a part of an integrated advancement model. And it's a refreshing thing to see. And it starts off with the leadership, like I said, at the top, all the way down through the group. And I think we're gonna see all parts of this advancement operation, including alumni engagement. Uh, you know, best practice, and you know a model for other institutions, and in so many ways. So there's already a lot of good things here. We're just going to make it even better. It's it's not good to great. It's it's great to greatest is what we're looking at here.
0: That's fantastic. Well, and Brian, so clearly you've identified that enhancing alumni and donor engagement strategies moving into the future is important. Um, why why do you think that that's true there, and particularly?
2: Well, I mean, we all know. You know, engagement leads to interest. Interest leads to investment, right? And investment takes many forms: time, talent, treasure, testimony, right? So it's not only about the dollars, but it's about recognizing that it is also about the dollars. Um, and so, when I think of engagement, it it really is about setting the stage for growth in new donor acquisition. Um, and, and maybe I could talk a little bit about you know one of the, the the points of pride that we've had here is over the last 5 year 5 years at least in a study that was done by Blackbaud with 35 of some of the leading universities in this country both public and private nc state has led the way in terms of new donor counts over the last 5 years we're at 15.6% over the last 5 years against a median amongst that group of a loss of 14%, right? So we know we've had this 25-year span where uh, alumni giving participation, but more importantly, you know, donor counts have been on the decline. And, and our secret sauce has been uh, through our day of giving activities. We've now uh, conducted four days of giving. Uh, for a while there, for about a year, we held the record for the most dollars raised in a day of giving with $58 million uh, last year. Uh, from about 14 and a half thousand donors. And so uh, what that has proven to us is uh, alumni of all ages uh, are connecting in ways that they never have before. They're engaging ways that they in some ways never have before. And that's just led to a greater degree of investment ultimately in in their alma mater. So um, why is that important? Uh, It's the pipeline, right? It's the pipeline for future campaigns. If uh, it, it, another interesting factoid that we have found in, in our days of giving, uh, and particularly our last one this past March, was 93% of the gifts were made online, right? So it underscores the importance of the future of digital and the shift from uh, direct mail and, and, and checks to, uh, you know, digital philanthropy. But 91% of the dollars in our latest day of giving came offline. And so what we have found is that the balance of broad-based growth and giving with 14,500 donors again this year, but also we had over, uh, we had 113 gifts of $25,000 or more, right? So it was, day of giving is not only a broad-based strategy, but one that has also enhanced our major gift activity. And it's the combination of those two that allow you to raise some serious dollars.
0: Yeah. And so when you think about what you'd like to accomplish over these next few years, when it comes to engagement strategies and and donor pipeline development, how are you thinking about that? What's at the top of your list?
2: What I think is I hire really smart people like Adam Compton and others and let them do their job. (laughs) But from my perspective, um, you know, I think the the, the future, and we talked about this, or you talked about this the other day at the Washburn and Golger conference. It's personalized, customized journeys, right? We we need to think about this in ways that, uh, in some ways that corporate America has thought about this, right? How do we find out exactly where your passions lie? And then how do we feed you information and communicate with you in ways that allow you to connect to that area of passion, be it your home college, your home department, athletics, the marching band, the libraries, whatever that may be. And and so I, I do think that the uh, the future is one that is increasingly digital first um, but one where I don't believe the the Willie Loman model is dead yet, right We still need that relationship that personalized relationship combined with how do we leverage technology uh, to to get us in the door right uh, and to create that journey uh combined with that personal touch
0: yeah. When you when you talk to other vice presidents about the importance of engagement, alumni engagement, donor engagement, but I guess more specifically alumni engagement, what are some of the themes that you're hearing? Do you, are others uh, sort of other leaders in your position thinking engagement should be more important, should be less important, or is the answer it kind of depends? Mm.
2: Well, I guess my my perspective is uh, engagement is. Ever increasingly important, right? That that is the pipeline for the future. Uh, we can't cut our nose off to spite our face to solely focus on, the, you know, the major gift dollar, right? Because the, the next generation won't be there if we don't do that broad based engagement. But uh, and this may actually be a Chris Marshall term. So, um, but but I love this notion of return on engagement, right? We talk about a return on investment, but uh, we have to focus on what is that return on engagement, and I, and I think. Increasingly, this this area of our business of engagement is one that has historically not had the focus on growing what you measure. Right. So the metrics piece of this understanding what is the return on the engagement that we're that we're funding, that we're doing. Um, and, and I think. The balance of that is elevating those things that we know work effectively. But balancing that against new technologies, uh, for example, you know, historically, all of us are in the habit of doing events, right? We do a lot of NC State. We do a ton of events. But the question is, are we really understanding why we're doing those events, how effective those events are? Is it really reinforcing the strategies that we would hope to uh, have that event underscore? Um, and so me- being able to measure that in ways that about, I don't think we're going to get out of the event business, but I think we've got to be much more focused and much more strategic about the investment we make in the best, just as one example.
0: Yeah. Chris, when, uh, just to follow up on the return on engagement idea, you know, for those who hadn't heard that sort of notion before, what, what does that mean? I think it's... What- before I answer the question, um, f- for folks
1: who are on and watching, and you're welcome to I see some comments coming in, but if you have questions for any of us, but specifically for Brian, please jump put them in the chat or in the comment section on LinkedIn and we'll be able to answer those questions as we go here. So um ROE for me is is a simple concept, really. It's um accountability. We we have for too long as an industry, you know, we, we started technically as an industry in 1913. And so 109 years have gone by and it really wasn't in the last five years that we developed industry-wide standards for measurement and there have been efforts before i know that even since the 90s there's been efforts so it's not like it's just those last five years but showing the impact of the work we do impact not just on fundraising frankly and in fact we shouldn't shy away from the fact that the work we do on engagement will impact fundraising but it can impact things like enrollment so recruiting of new students uh retention of existing students uh, hiring of our graduates and internships and jobs, of course, fundraising, and there's many other advocacy. If you're a state institution, state and federal advocacy is critical. So those five things right there, we should be able to measure what we're doing. When we, so Brian's team should come back to him and say, for the amount of money you're investing in what we're doing, this is the return we're getting on that investment. And it shows impact on dollars. It shows impact on recruiting students and retaining students, etc. All those things especially in this day and age, higher ed's under fire. So if we can't show value uh, in, in engaging our alumni to get behind those issues that are critical to an institution from many places, not, not the NC State's the world, but there are a lot of institutions out there where enrollment of new first-time students and retention of existing students is a lifeline to staying, keeping their doors open. Um, and alums can play a role in, in impacting that. And that's not just giving money. It's giving their time and their efforts and their talents to mentor and to you know, get out there and get kids to say yes to us versus saying yes to go somewhere else. It's a yield strategy on the admission side. All those things to me add up to we're showing an impact and we're showing a return on that engagement work, the bottom line.
0: I think. So, so. I'll, I'll ask this question to you, Chris, but then Brian, I hope you might be able to chime in on it as well, which is, so we've kind of talked about the importance of donor pipeline development at the completion of a ca- campaign and then thinking long-term out into the next campaign but does that mean it's less important or should look different during a campaign? And, you know, what, what are some of your thoughts about how, you know, things should, should shift, right. Uh, Depending on whether the focus is sort of now or future related. Chris, you can go first and then, and then Brian. I I only give you a lame consultant answer. I think, I think it's both.
1: (laughs) I think, I think you need to have focus on both sides. I think leading up to absolutely. But when you're in a campaign, it might change to be a more focused level of engagement so that your alumni program is actually impacting the donors at the highest levels, leadership annual and above. Um, And I'm not saying that we do away with a broad based engagement strategy, but we might lean in a little bit further during a campaign to say, how can we engage the donors that can help us get to that campaign goal in a different way? Um, So to me, it might be a slight change in volume, if you will, towards a targeted population population any campaign. Otherwise, it's important all the way through. Brian, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot for that. You know, the the way I like to think about it is we need to treat all of our constituents, alumni and others, really well, right? We need to treat everybody well, but there are some folks that we treat differently, uh, either because they are lead volunteers or potentially lead donors. And developing those strategies that emphasize that, I think, becomes critical, particularly during the campaign. I also think, and, and we're in this mode now of thinking about the next campaign, what are those things that we need to have in place to be ready for that next campaign? Uh, and things that you wouldn't normally do during the middle, middle of a campaign. So we're going through a CRM conversion. Well, we've started the process. We're about ready to issue that contract. Uh, you don't You don't do a CRM co- conversion in the middle of a campaign. Uh, and, and, and having those tools in place to help prepare for that, that next campaign becomes, I think, pretty critical.
0: Yeah. Is are there any other, that's a great example of a thing, you know, you, you don't really do during a campaign, but you definitely want to do if you need to enhance things for the next one. Are there any other examples that you can think of that are sort of areas where you sort of identified on campus, okay, we, we made our campaign, this went really well, but we do need to, you know, invest in these areas?
2: You know, I think most universities talk a good game when it comes to uh, volunteer engagement uh, in preparation for a campaign. And at the end of the day, it's a lot of work, right? It takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of effort. And I don't know that any of us really, truly uh, f- have figured out the secret sauce. And, and to me, that's one of those things that I think we need to really think through is how do we position our volunteers to do both what is valuable to them, but also what is value-add to us, Um, because sometimes those things don't always sync up, right? Uh, Volunteers, the more they get involved, the more they want to do, and sometimes that's doable, and other times maybe that's not what we want you to do, right? So figuring that out is, I think, one of the, the things to really figure out going into the next community, and I think that landscape is changing. Uh, you know, historically, we have your campaign co-chairs. You've got your your campaign cabinet. But I think we really have to understand: all right, what is it that we really need that will be most effective? Um, so that's, I think, another area of really trying to hone in uh, because that landscape changes every day.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, a definitely a wild moment in history. A changing landscape for lots of the things that we've we've been doing and, and will do in the future. Um, Chris, it is at this portion of the show before we lose our live viewing audience that we typically like to, uh, tease our guests for next, our next show. Would you like to, would you like to do so, sir?
1: Sitting here on Friday at almost noon on June 24th, we are almost confirmed on these next two. We have a whole summer lineup of people, which we'll publish, but the next two, we're not sure what order yet, but it's, uh, uh Matthew Ewing from Boise state, Brian's counterpart there will be talking about some some of the same topics, but diving in other areas. But we're excited also to also announce that Sue Cunningham from CASE, the president of CASE, as an organization, will be joining us on our broadcast as well. So looking forward to that session, of course. And she's schedule-wise around the CASE Summit coming up in a few weeks is why it's not
0: exactly nailed down yet as to when it's going to happen. But we'll let you all know. Yeah. Yes, this is a, a busy time to uh, chat with Sue Cunningham in advance of the some of the casework they do over the summer. But uh, it was great to confirm that she is indeed interested in, in being a special guest. And uh, we'll look forward to working to put uh, those conversations on the calendar over the short term. OK, so thank you for everyone who's listening live. Uh, it's great to have you. Thank you for chiming in and saying hello. Uh, of course, uh, if you'd like to hear the next section of the uh, alumnus episode six with Brian, we are going to have a, another chat in the Zoom room and then publish the two, the LinkedIn Live and the, the uh, additional bonus segment together to make the podcast version. And I'll work to have that up and in your podcast stream early next week. Uh, so thank you for everyone who has been listening. It is great uh, that you spent some of your Friday with us. Have an awesome weekend and we'll catch you next time. Bye everybody.
2: Thanks everybody.
0: Okay. Welcome back everyone to the bonus segment of alumnus. We're here with Brian Cisco. We have found a quiet zoom room to resume our conversation and uh, keep the ideas flowing a great uh, live show just now with um engagement from the live audience and some awesome thoughts so let's pick up the conversation where we left off uh Brian uh, so given that you're investing now in engagement and making advanced preparations for the next campaign someday sort of on the horizon right what does that mean from a time horizon standpoint from your perspective and how far into the future are you thinking uh about another campaign, and how will you know when you're ready?
2: <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that I did some analysis on is looking at successful billion dollar campaigns, particularly successful $2 billion campaigns. And in every case in the history of fundraising in this great country of ours, the next campaign is always 2x or more. And so we've started down this path of, uh, accepting that for NC State, our next campaign, uh, whenever that is, and I'll talk about time framing in a second here, is is one where it may not get to 2x, but that's where our focus needs to be. Um, and so what do we need to do to be prepared for a $4 billion campaign? Uh, and in my estimation, um, we're looking at a time horizon of sometime in the next five or six years. So... I'm kind of viewing this as a 2X campaign in five years. Yeah. Um, so that becomes kind of our internal focus. And and I think, uh, you know, a lot of this is about how do you build out your infrastructure, right? Infrastructure and staffing. Uh, and we have an aggressive staffing plan uh, that we've worked out to, to, to grow across advancement, not just frontline fundraising, but across advancement, because you need, uh all elements at nc state our marketing communications team is part of advancement that's not always the case i think it's been a critical part of our success because we're all integrated on on that same front right and it's really paid dividends in ways that i don't think we could have anticipated but I, i think it's staff infrastructure it's volunteer infrastructure Uh, It's, you know, as we talked in the previous session, it's about having the the technology resources behind what we're trying to do. All of that, uh, you know, combines to to a real focus in the next five years. How do you know when you're ready? You know, my experience is you're never 100 percent ready. Right. You try to be as ready as you possibly can. Uh, but if, if if you wait until you're hundred percent, you may never launch that next campaign. Uh, you gotta go when you you know when you're probably at that eighty to eighty five percent level uh, and you try to continue to build that train as it's moving down the tracks throughout the campaign.
0: Just just a quick follow up. What are some of the boxes that you you feel like you fundamentally must check in order to be ready to be at that eighty to ninety percent?
2: Yeah, my mind goes to, you know, staff, goes to volunteers, it goes to the internal uh, relationships and goal setting with deans uh, and university leadership, really trying to uncover what are those game-changing big ideas uh, that donors can, can get really excited about. It is about identifying, you know, that next tier of leadership donors. You know, as an example, we were successful and Pleasantly surprised that we had thirty donors of five million dollars or more in this last campaign. We're now working with a subset of that group, frankly, the top five of those uh, five million dollar donors, and helping us build out the profile of what does a principal gift donor look like at NC State. And we're hoping to leverage that with their help because we want to. We only we want to three x uh, the number of. Of principal gift donors in the next campaign, part of this is is really understanding how that profile is shifting uh, over time, and how do we how do we leverage that, right? So, um, so I, I don't know. I could give you a laundry list of boxes, but those are some of the first ones that come to my mind.
1: Brian, there, there with Washburn, I know we we look at eight different. Items, there are eight different aspects to be ready to launch in a campaign when we do a campaign ready. And you ticked off four or five of them right there. So you're, you, I think the fundamental pieces are, are all on the list. But I, I agree with you. You're never going to be 100% ready. And if you want to get there, you will never launch a campaign. <laughs> 100%. But Brian, uh, let's shift it to the role that your alumni, I'll, I'll say this, formerly the Alumni Association, which will always be an association, but we're shifting the concept of that to your alumni engagement team. The folks that work in alumni engagement, what what's going to happen there over the next several years to get them ready and to have them that machine ready to support a campaign as you enter it?
2: Well, one of the structural changes that we're making as we speak uh is we're we're merging an office of alumni engagement with our office of I'll say annual giving, even though Adam tells me we're going to change that name. (laughs) Office of Multiple Giving, I don't know, uh, into one cohesive unit. Uh, It'll be a team initially of 55 staff members with a budget of about seven and a half million dollars. So it's a significant part of our operation. And I think what I hope comes out of that is a much more strategic approach to how we how we move our alumni and other constituents through that pipeline, from engagement to interest to investment. And uh, I see no uh, better combination than those two. But while I say that, I also feel that it's the full integration, not just with annual giving, but the rest of development, with marketing communications, with advancement services. Uh, That integration is critical to enable us to, to really maximize the resources that we're investing in that.
1: that. That that well, physically they're located, you know, on an island in some ways where they are on campus, the alumni center itself, but that notion of them being sort of postured as a on an island is something that's already changing. You can see it and feel it as we've gone through this last several months in work groups. I know you have a a new FTE coming on board, a major new position hire that will be announced pretty soon, uh, which is exciting. I'm I'm thrilled that we're headed down that path. And I think, again, it'll be a model that people will look at. One of the conversations we had a week ago was with John Valva at Oregon State. And we talked about the merging of alumni associations and foundations. And you have a pretty unique structure here. That's just Oregon State. We talked about it more broadly as an industry trend. It's happened at Wisconsin and dozens of other places. You've seen it. How does this alignment work at NC State and how has it changed over the years? And, and, and go back a little bit if you can, because I know when you arrived here, the number of separate foundation organizations that existed was was significant and, and you've worked over the years to get them down to a more manageable number.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've been, I think, fortunate um, in that we have had an interdependent model uh, between the Alumni Association and the university. Uh, I know some places the staff of those independent uh, 501c3s are actually staff of that independent 50c3, whereas uh, in our case, they are all university employees. I think that it makes it uh, more cohesive. And so I think that tends to work better. Um, and and so I think that, that you know, I, th- I think you gave a statistic the other day, you know, we're down to less than 10 truly independent uh, alumni associations that are 501c3s. and, and, and I think that's uh, an indication that the future is about uh, integration and interdependence. And Chris is now frozen on my screen, Ryan, but um, maybe we'll get him back here shortly. Yeah, maybe we,
0: maybe we will. That's okay. We'll'll uh, we'll, we'll press on. And, and so um, you know, tell us a little bit about when you think of alumni engagement, and you look out over the horizon one year, three years, five years into the future, how do you see it changing if you're to do some predicting?
2: I think the focus on an enhancement of digital and technology is a must for us. I think we as an industry still lag, most major industries, Figuring that out is something I think that we're all going to be faced with in terms of both opportunity and challenge. Um, I believe that the future is less about uh, regionally based activities and game watches and much more about figuring out uh, where one's affinity lies. Um, because I think we do know that when we connect uh, when we engage people around those things they're most passionate about it leads to really good stuff right we you can't force the square peg into the round hole and so I think I really do think that's a uh, a really big piece of this welcome back Chris we glad Sorry. to be back on the show here
0: yeah. <laughs> the technology is is wonderful but fickle at times isn't it
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm not gonna make a joke about the NC state guest Wi-Fi. I shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to give you a compliment and in, in also a, sort of doubles as a shameless plug. Uh, you know, I spend a lot, some of my time working with a, a startup called Protopia, right? And, and Protopia is a solution that you have. It's an AI powered solution that you are one of our earliest adopters and have really worked to integrate that solution across campus as a way to scale engagement and identify the interests of those people. And so I wanted to Offer a compliment and uh, you know a thank you for that uh, that partnership because I think it's part of an exciting new suite of solutions that will emerge over the course of the next decade that are really going to be useful in helping to uh, accomplish engagement goals.
2: I, I agree. We've you know the early returns thus far with Protopia have been very positive, um, not only for younger alumni who are looking for that you know, often career advice and mentorship, but it's been an engagement tool for some of our uh, more mature alumni, right? So it's a it's a double win strategy. Um, and then again, linking people around common areas of interest is the secret sauce, right? Um, you know, that's where I was going to say, I think the, the career piece of uh, what we can offer as a service, I think will only continue to increase. Um, and I think, you know, NC State's fortunate that, You know, we're still one of those places uh, as a STEM intensive university where, you know, there's a big piece of this where people come to NC State because they know that they'll have lots of job opportunities come out the other side. And we've been able to prove that over time.
0: Chris, you've done a deep dive now into NC State's, you know, engagement programs and strategies, you know. How do you think things will grow and evolve there at NC State from their uh, tactical standpoint, from a programmatic standpoint or areas of emphasis?
1: Yeah, I, I think the biggest win is going to come from the internal collaboration of what's happening in the college and units, colleges and units here. Because the, that island concept they talked about, again, they have it's a very strong program. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, not, I'm trying to blast it, but it was kind of on its own. And there were examples of times where they they did some things in collaboration with other places on campus. But to be in a position where they can do that strategically, to me, that's the game changer. When you have the alignment between what's happening at the central program with what's happening, and you've heard me talk about this, Ryan, that the orchestration of an alumni engagement across an entire institution at a place like NC State is really hard to do. But those schools that can do it and figure out how to make that music play and sound right to all our audiences is where the big win is going to happen. So that's the thing I'm most excited about. The annual giving combo is going to be critical and also the work with advancement in marketing communications. All that alignment is going to improve. But I think the biggest advance we're going to see is when we get into that, because there are examples around this campus where they have alumni professionals in the colleges and units that don't report into the center and aren't very coordinated with what's happening in the center. And that alone will start to, you know, the, the, what that will build and the, um, the gains we'll see from an engagement side will, will be significant from that collaboration. That's what I'm most excited about.
0: And not, not so much like new programming, right? But new efficiencies and, and processes and, and enhancing relationships that make uh, sort of existing endeavors better and perhaps bring to light new opportunities that uh, with through collaboration are, you know, um, will help take the program to the next level. Yeah, cl- collaboration at,
1: at any campus is hard,
0: but when you're at a
1: large public university like this, sometimes collaboration is letting your colleagues know that the event's gonna happen tomorrow. And that's, that's how it's defined. But letting people know earlier in the process of ideating where you're going to create something of whether it's a volunteer structure, communication strategy, or an event, um, the earlier you involve them in that process, I, I had a colleague one time tell me you got involved me in the takeoff, not on the crash landing. And that's collaboration when you get them in earlier. <laughs> so I think Absolutely. I, I, have a, I have a follow-up for Brian, if it's all right, Brian.
0: It's your show, bud.
1: All right, man. <laughs> uh, Brian, let's go back to your campaign. And I, I, I said earlier, I was at your campaign celebration. And besides your moment of incredible dance skills that you demonstrated <laughs> during the event of it, and by the way, really cool to have cool in the gang start off with celebrate, uh, at the beginning of your, uh, show there, but what was your favorite moments? I mean, you go back and think about the time during the campaign. Is there anything that stands out for you? One or two things that
2: sort of shines brightest for you? You know, there, I guess in some ways there's so many, it'd be hard to count, but know, a few moments that, that still resonate with me, we did a, uh, volunteer summit in advance of the, Public launch of the campaign, and we had a little over 150 of our top uh, volunteers together over a, a two-day window, and and what I witnessed was a, a commitment and an energy and a passion that I didn't anticipate. Right, they were ready to go, and I still remember that sticking out to me because we uh, we were ready to go, and that gave me uh, you know confidence going into the public phase of the campaign. And then I remember when we hit the billion dollar mark, the, the first billion, um, we have a wonderful special events team and they organized a little bit of a surprise announcement where the chancellor was there and we we kind of brought the team together. And one of the things they did is they had a student acapella group uh, come up with using the uh, Bare Naked Ladies uh, song instead of uh, if I had a million dollars, it was if I had a billion dollars. <laughs> and so I just remember that as being a a, a really neat part and, and then I think of um the various dedication ceremonies, the various celebratory moments throughout the campaign where uh we were able to you know to to kind of raise the flag and and high five and and you know see the the donors uh you know visibly uh moved by, uh what they were able to create here and and those are the things that stand out to me
1: you know i'll I'll add one brian i think you'll agree here so i came to your campaign celebration with my at the time 18 year old son who was looking at colleges he was on college so you actually i was able to bring him to the event of course he's blown away by it. but when you had the four students stand up in front and you talked about this earlier impact the impact of the work you're doing, and them sharing their own stories about the impact, I get chills. And I'm saying it, I was in tears. I turned to my son, and I said, can you ever see yourself doing that in a few years?" And he was like, "No, he's like scared to death thinking about it." But those students were amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it it speaks to this, you know, the story of access and opportunity, right? right. Uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, you know, for a land grant university, that's you know in our DNA, and to be able to create those opportunities for students who wouldn't have envisioned themselves in that place four or five years earlier uh to have, have, and and you know my my personal plug is that's why i believe the residential college experience uh will will survive all everything else that's that's in its way uh because you, this is where young people become adults right this is where they're they're put in an environment where they they have to they have to grow. They have to adapt. They have to figure things out on their own. And uh, maybe that's why I got into higher ed so many years ago, because I had a phenomenal uh, you know, college experience. And I thought, well, if I can create that for others, you know, more power. Right. That's great.
0: It sounds like a lot of things went really well during the campaign over the, its you know, course, but I have to imagine there were times where there were some hiccups, or maybe there were things that surprised you that you hadn't anticipated. You know, if you were to reflect back over the campaign, what were some things that stand out that uh, maybe didn't go as well, or perhaps you know you were able to uh, you had to address them and and make a, a shift or a pivot.
2: Well I you know I think one of the things I hadn't fully embraced uh having spent the first 25 years of my career in private higher ed. Uh Chris mentioned this earlier, you know, we we do have a number of 501c3 independent foundations that are connected to primarily most of our larger colleges and units and athletics. Um and I think the, that sense of independence, that sense of that we have to protect our history because somehow we're going to sacrifice something by being part of the whole. And I think uh, I was a little caught off by, by that because I didn't, I didn't fully appreciate that coming in. But I think in the end, uh, this is a campus that's far more uh, collaborative and coordinated than uh, it's ever been. Um, and while, and I think the secret to that is, you know, those foundations can retain their independence, but at the end of the day, their mission is to support, you know, that particular college and ultimately the university. And that's what we've, you know, really worked to underscore, uh, during this time. And so I think we're in a really good place today as a result. Awesome.
0: Well, uh, before we let you go, one more question. Uh, we've asked this to some of our other guests on the show, but I think it's important for our listeners to get us, to get a sense of where do the people that we highlight get their inspiration? Uh, where do you find uh, mentorship or, uh, you know, content that has got you know, has enabled you to create and, um, you know, move forward in a, in a positive way. So what's, what's your inspiration, Brian?
2: You know, I think, um, You know, it's corny, I guess, but I I do believe that, you know, our our work in advancement, whether you are a vice chancellor or a gift records clerk or somewhere in between, it's helping others fulfill their dreams. And I think back to uh, one of the campaign chairs I had at a previous institution who, whenever she spoke publicly, talked about, you know, don't give until it hurts. Give until it feels really good. and. And I've always remembered that as something that I think is is, is something that as a development professional, as an advancement fe- professional, I want to create those opportunities for people that can achieve that nirvana, right? And if you've been in this long enough, you know when you see it, right? Um, at the same time, and I'll reflect on, I just learned the other day that um, an individual that was a campaign co-chair for the first two campaigns I was involved in uh, recently passed away. He was a senior executive at uh, Kodak, Eastman Kodak company, back when they actually made film and they were, you know, had 50,000 employees in Rochester, New York alone. But uh, Chuck always talked about, you know, you got to take the time to ring the bell. I'm like, what are you talking about? He was in charge of sales for Kodak. He said when you have something good happen, you have to pause and ring the bell and celebrate those moments because they're fleeting. And if you don't do that, those that were part of that, you know, you're just moving on to the next thing. And and I've always tried to do that here and throughout my career. That's my inspiration is seeing that in, you know, the team that made that happen, right? No, no gift or no special moment like that was ever achieved by one person alone. And uh, I think that's critical to the success of a team and the success of a university. Well,
0: uh, those are t- two great philosophy is to stick a pin on as we wrap things up don't give until it hurts give until it feels good and always be sure to ring the bell make people on your team feel good and uh, ready for the next uh, portion of the campaign or whatever happens next but make sure to ring the bell brian sisco thank you so much for your time Uh, grateful for it chris marshall pleasure as always See you Monday morning uh, when we chat next. Uh, You guys have a great rest of your day in workshops. And uh, I'll be sure to send around the link to the podcast when I can publish it. For those of you who are listening, thanks for joining us. Uh, And uh, we'd love your thoughts. We'd love your feedback. So if you're interested in providing some of that, you can reach me at ryan at cmac.me. You can reach Chris at chris.marshall at cmac.me. We'd love to know what you think about alumnus. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, listen to the podcast and uh, participate in our show. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next time.